in my book that is coming out on Veep Collaboration, I have talked about the fact that previously our metrics of performance uh, were whether you are able to do it on time, below cost and high quality. And I call that the iron triangle of success, very hard iron metrics on performance. But as you kind of start transitioning to the human age, I have been for a very long time, even in my classes at the business school and with my clients, been talking about the human triangle. And the metrics of the human triangle are affinity, uh, opportunity, and learning. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with the ordinary don't belong. Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is a multi-award-winning keynote speaker, best-selling author of The Spark That Lies Within, and the president of the Asia Professional Speakers Society. Our guest has a PhD on organizational behavior and human resource management from the University of Pittsburgh Katz Graduate School, and is now a senior faculty and program director in executive development at the prestigious Singapore Management University. She's a certified storytelling coach, conversational intelligence coach, and culture talk tools coach with global giants, including Accenture, MasterCard, Coca-Cola, and Microsoft. I have the pleasure of introducing to you the first Asia-based leader to be listed on the Game Changer list by Workforce Magazine in the US. She has been featured on Forbes, Economic Times, and BBC World, is a two-time member of the top 200 global influences on leadership, and the first woman of color to serve as president of the Asia Speakers Association Singapore in 2021. Dr. Tanvi Gautam, Dr. Tanvi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. Uh, beautiful. Now, look, you're living there in uh, Singapore right now, but I'm really, really curious, where did you grow up and what was the big dream when you were chasing your friends around the schoolyard? Uh, where where did I grow up makes an assumption that I have grown up, which I don't think I have yet fully. So, so many places <laughs> have contributed to it. I was born and brought up in India, but then I have lived and worked in Australia, um, which is below the equator, and in the US, which is above the equator. And now I am at the equator in Singapore. So very, very global uh, influences in my growing up. When I was running around the schoolyard, I wanted to be something to do with aviation. I've always been fascinated by flight and the space out there. So a lot of like maybe an astronaut or maybe a pilot. But my mom tells me at the age of five, I wanted to be an aeroplane, not a pilot, but an aeroplane. And I, I was thinking like, why might I have said that? And maybe it's because um, I think I'm capable of self-direction. I don't need a pilot telling me where to go. <laughs> ah, great reflection. I, I love that, which is really good. Now, would you consider yourself more of a leader or a follower when you were kind of in your teenage years? Uh, I would say um, I would uh, mostly a leader in the sense that I found myself uh, organizing a lot of things uh, without uh, thinking about it. But followers in other places, I suppose I've always kind of had a little bit of sense of where I might want to step up and where I'm best stepping back. I think that's uh, that's a good skill to have, knowing when you should absolutely give way to somebody else. So you've been to both places still. 
<laughs> I love that. I, to me, the the best leaders know when to follow and know when to lead, and they have absolute clarity on what their role is in that present time and place, situation, or team environment. Environment, whether they're a CEO or they're a middle manager or even just an employee, have you found that as well? Absolutely, I, I have to agree. You know, so my roots uh, in research and even uh, when I was with um, a company known as Arthur Anderson, which some of your listeners might have heard about, uh, and I grew up in the corporate world in project teams, and one of the things we see in project teams is that the person who should be leading it should be the person who has the best skills to lead in that particular phase of the project or that particular mm -hmm. stage of the project cycle, etc. So I am very much a believer in, you know, uh, the shifting pilot, co-pilot kind of a role, let the other person lead where they lead best. The trouble is it requires a lot of uh, self-awareness on part of the leaders and it requires them to to put aside ego when it comes to um, leading in this type of an arrangement. And that's not always easy unless you've had time to sit and reflect about some of these things. Uh, you know, we we are kind of the product, I suppose, in a way of our environment a lot of the times. Uh, for you growing up, who was kind of the, the key role model for you or was there multiple people that kind of shaped who you are as in the or influence the way you are as a leader? I think so. Um, you know, I grew up in a household where there was very uh, much an encouragement of stepping up and being independent in your own uh, thinking. Um, and I do a lot of work on storytelling. So can I just tell you a quick story which just illustrates what this is all about? Um, For sure. I was, uh, you know, a teenager and like all teenagers, I wanted to stay out late at night and I wanted to go to a party and... Uh, uh, and negotiated the timeline you know I wanted to come back at one and you know my dad was like 10 and then we settled at 11 30 and I made a lot of effort and I was not the cool kid who was getting you know back on time and I came home and I saw that there was nobody awake in the house the lights were off uh, you know I had the keys I came in and I was very upset I was very upset because nobody was there to check what time I came back so I told my dad the next morning I said shouldn't you have been awake to see if I was back on time or not. And he said, not at all. One, I completely trust you. And second of all, do you think I'm going to be walking at every stage in your life, checking if you're doing the right thing? If I can't give you the judgment and the ownership to do this now, then I'm not going to be able to give it to you ever. And in that moment was a moment of recognizing what self-leadership looks like and doing what you say because you said you're going to do it, not because someone's checking on you. And so very, very early influences of, you know, uh, reflecting on the choices you make, et cetera, were definitely central to who I ultimately became. Yeah, I love that. I love the approach, giving you trust and, you know, just kind of being really honest at, at that point in time, which is a great lesson to learn. We've seen a lot of amazing leaders come out of India, uh, you know, who have, who are currently and, and who have led some huge multinational companies, some of the biggest brands on the planet. What do you think it is about the culture in India that allows them to be able to thrive in a multicultural environment from around the world? That's such a great question. Thank you so much for asking that. Um, I lived in India till I was uh, 20 and I left after that. Um, but I can tell you this, growing up in India is a very unique experience. Uh, it, a lot of it has to do with developing resilience and resourcefulness very early. And partly it's because um, India being as uh, populated as it is, you have to have that, uh, you know, attitude of stepping up and, you know, leading yourself in the direction you want to go. You, you just can't leave it to chance. You can't leave it to systems or the government or the education. So it is quite competitive right from the start, I mm. have to say. Um, second thing, India is very unique in that... Um, if you know people talk about the great Indian wedding and you know there are movies made on it going for, to the great Indian wedding, and I can tell you that the Indian wedding, if 
somebody should do a case study on, on it because honestly, uh, everything is breaking into chaos. You don't think anything is going to happen and you wonder how you know the marriage will ever take place. But it all happens at the last minute, magically, as though by magic. And I think there is a certain um, <laughs> underlying logic to the system, which at least I have not been able to crack. So what happens is you've grown up in an environment where a lot of things are in the air and you don't get unnerved by it. Mm. You know that as long as you're putting a few things in place, it will all come together in the end. So I think there is this level of comfort with uncertainty and improvisation, I would say. And the third thing is that India is a very diverse country. Uh, you could feel you are in like four or five different or even more than that type of uh, cultures from the north to the south to the east to the west. Uh, the food, the language, the culture, the, the dressing, the, uh, you know, and yet despite that, there's a lot of mythology, folklore and history that goes in common. So when you have been exposed to such um diversity just growing up you come to accept it as part of uh, you know your uh, dna that yes there are people who do things differently and that's fine and you get comfort you get comfortable with leading with multiple perspectives so i think a lot of this feeds into it i often tell people growing up in india is an education in its own right in resourcefulness in resilience uh, and in uh, navigating through diversity so and add that some great education and uh, opportunity and you see what you see in the landscape today. Yeah, I know from my very small moments in time that I've been in India that I can attest that it is a very, very diverse place. And, and just love, I love, the, the one thing I really love about India is they're so proud to show off their heritage and their place, their the, the pride is is, is amazing. I, I love that um, component. You know, I come from New Zealand, but we, we're, we're so humble that we, you know, yeah, we've got like everyone kind of sees it's a beautiful place to live and, and there's great scenery, but we're so humble about it. Whereas the Indians like, come, come with me. I'm going to show you something. You should see this. And, and so it's a really unique perspective that I absolutely love. And I, I would love to see people kind of, take that mentality into the workplace, you know, come with mm. me, let me show you these exciting things that are happening in our workplace. You know, it doesn't need to be physical, what the office looks like, but it's around, you know, come with me, let me show you what this amazing person's doing or what we've been collaborating on. This is what's special about us. So I think we can learn a lot from that by applying the India hospitality mentality into the workplace. I agree. You know, one of the questions I ask some of my leaders when we are working on culture is, would you want your um, children or your spouse to join this workplace? Uh, what kind of workplace do you want them to inherit? Uh, do you think this is a workplace that you know you want them to come around? In? And if the answer is no, well, then we have a problem. And mm -hmm. so I think that sense of of pride and 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 ownership and commitment absolutely is is needed. What do you what what do you think is the reason, Craig? We don't see as much of it in the workplace. I think quite often it's a transaction. Like uh, you, uh, I will come work for you. You pay me money, give me holidays. I'll work where and whenever I want, <laughs> as it seems to be now. Um, I'll mm. tell you when I'm leaving, if I do tell you. Uh, so it's very transactional in a way. Um, th there are some amazing companies out there that do do this very well. And, and um, mm. you know, you can see them really thriving. Um, mm. So I think this is kind of part of that. Like, it's like, oh, this is just something I have to do. You know, it pays the rent. And and obviously we see that in a lot of the the research around uh, engagement in the workplace and things like that. So I, I think the leaders have a huge role to play in this and, and maybe parents as well and, and teachers as they're guiding people through is to, is to bring those values into people around, you know, that work is part of your life. It is not separate. And you're on this planet for a short time, so you might as well enjoy it. So let's figure out a way to enjoy this and and feel pride in what we do. And so maybe it's not enough reward and recognition around certain things. Maybe it's not enough um, understanding and kind of connection of the culture. Maybe. What do you think? I, I have to agree. It's, there has to be that transactional part of it. But uh, you know, since we we were talking about India and we are we we began talking about cultures, I think there is there is definitely a difference in 
the leadership we see culturally. So I was reading Indra Nui's um, uh, book, and you know she talks about in there. You know she was on the board of PepsiCo and all of that, and she talks about one of the most cherished moments in the employees' lives was when she wrote to the parents of the employees a personal note yeah. thanking the parents. And I said, you know, that is such a beautiful human touch. Because everybody who you are dealing with, they're either, you know, somebody's parent or someone's child or, you know, and to be able to reach out and and have that conversation. I mean, when um, oftentimes I find that recognizing the the people who are behind the employees, supporting them every day, they are very much a part of your success equation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that. To your point, we kind of truncate it into that transactional nine to five or nine to nine, depending where you are in the world. Uh, yeah. Not recognizing there's there's a whole bubble around this person and and people uh, who hear about your workplace and your work culture more than you realize on dinner tables and you know feel the impact of that uh, in their daily life and there's that spillover effect right how would you lead somebody if you knew you were not just impacting them but you were impacting their uh, family and their children because we spend the better part of our day at work and then in some cases we take what's left over to the re- you know, the rest of the family, and if that that what's left over gets impacted by what's been happening due to the day, it's 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 kind of shortchanging the rest of the people. So maybe recognizing the the extensiveness of your impact, not just on the person in front of you, but the people you don't see, yeah, is a way of of developing that connection beyond that transaction part that you were saying. Yeah, I like that. I think that's important uh, for those listening. Uh, by the way, uh, Ingenui spoke about you know shared the story with. Uh, we use it as an, a great example. This is if, if you want to see business storytelling at its absolute best. When she shares the story, I think it's on an interview at Yale. I think mm-hmm. um, there's a great video online, so maybe check that out. But you know, talking about family and that connection going beyond the transaction. And going beyond the workplace, like one of the things I'm finding fascinating right now, I have a nine-month baby girl um, who's absolutely adorable. I love it a bit. I'm working from home. A lot of the time I get to travel as well. But she gets to be a part of work, which is quite rare. It's, it's mm. really, really rare. She gets, to, she gets to see me in action when I'm presenting online or when I'm interacting with our team. But she also gets to come on stage sometimes, like I'll take her with me. So she's getting a real insight into what my life is, which includes work. You should do that while you can. I have a teenager and I can't even pay him to get him to be on stage. So enjoy the stage of of, of parenting while it lasts. (laughs) I realize I've only got a short period of time before she starts running around and talking and she will own the stage, which could be a little bit, (laughs) a little bit chaotic. Um, You know, you're talking about the way the Indian, uh, India works at weddings, right? I think that could be a very chaotic way of working, but uh, yeah, good fun. Now, now you've, um, obviously lived in different cultures. You know, we've talked about from an India perspective. What have you noticed when you're working? You know, you lived in Australia, you lived in America, lived in Singapore. What have you noticed in the differences in the way people tend to lead in those countries? I know there's always going to be a diverse approach, but but in general, do you see quite a big difference in those leadership approaches? I think the difference is in where your attention goes first when you are trying to navigate through a situation. Uh, So for example, in Singapore, um, the culture is very process oriented. So we tend to look at how do we frame the issue in front of us from the lens of process first? Is this a good process? Is it the most efficient process? Is it the most productive process? And, And we start from there. I find in the US, the question begins with who's leading the ship? Do they have what it takes? Have we given them the the skills and the education and the authority and not realizing that there is a possibility that it's not the person, but the process and vice versa, right? In a place Mm -hmm. like this, where you're talking about process, I could have a beautiful process and a person who doesn't know how to execute on it, right? And so I think the difference kind of comes up in what's the natural inclination uh, of the person and how they might end up framing the issue. 
And if they're a well-rounded leader, they will move past their first instinct and start looking at other aspects of leadership as well. But how quickly will they do that? And how extensively will they look at the other frames that are available? Really depends on the, the exposure of the leader and their inclination and interest in doing that. So to me, that's the, that's the di interesting difference I have observed. Yeah. When we look at, I suppose, the current landscape, you know, for you, you've been working in the leadership space for a, for a number of years. What are you seeing as the biggest shifts that leaders need to consider in the way that they approach um, the corporate landscape or if they're, or even if they're leading, you know, teams or communities, what have been the biggest shifts that we need to comprehend and, and really grasp as leaders? I think so, you know, I've been asked this question a lot of late, and I think partly it has to do with the fact that we are a bit of an inflection point given the post-pandemic landscape that we are navigating. And I think it's a great question to be asking at this point in time because it's going to determine the forward momentum. I think one of the biggest shifts I have seen is the recognition that self-leadership needs to come before other leadership and how almost everything that is going on around you in some is in some ways related to the work you have done on yourself and the reflection space that you have had. Like in a lot of my executive coaching clients, I find that their ability to lead shifts in culture come with a reflection on their own level of comfort or discomfort around the change that they have to lead. So I think that's a welcome shift. I, I think we'll see more of that happening. Um, one is willingness to be a beginner again and again and again uh, yeah. because the landscape shifts so fast and you know the the world of artificial intelligence is not going away anytime soon um, and so learning to be in that beginner's mindset previously was a good to have now it's a must-have it's yeah. one of those skills if you don't uh, engage with i don't think you're going to be a good leader and the third one is um Comfort with um, uncertainty, uh, not knowing where things are going. And uh, that's a hard one because I think the field of management thrives on trying to create frameworks and formulae and five steps and checklists, which mm -hmm. work great when we were doing shop floor work, which does work great when we are trying to do process engineering. But when you are trying to tap into people's creativity, when you are trying to be innovative in the workplace, there is no way you can put it down to a checklist. Sure, there are a few you know, good rules of thumb that you're going to end up following. But if you are somebody who likes to bulletproof everything and you want to have you know, the contingency planning thing, I have to ask if you were asleep during the pandemic because the pandemic showed how little control we have on most things. And yet we did more or less okay, I feel. We managed to pull together and we were willing to look for answers in places we didn't normally uh, go to. And so there's a lot to be said about that comfort with, um, I don't know what this is, but we'll figure it out. So I would say those are the three three shifts that I see in the leadership uh, arena. Yeah, I love it. I was just thinking then, you know, when it comes to change, uh, from what I understand and from the research I've done and things I've seen, it's not so much that people fear change, it's that they fear loss. But what's mm. fascinating, right, is when COVID hit, you didn't really have a chance to fear loss. You mm. had no choice. So so when we think about big changes happening in, in not only uh, the corporate world, but also in society, how do we get people to kind of shift past that, that feeling of loss um, into a space of, you know what, we we need to be our mindset of progression and momentum in a way? Mm. It's such a great question. Um, you know, so how do we get past uh, the sense of loss? I would frame it as you don't need to get past it as much as you need to metabolize it as much as you need to integrate that experience. 
one of the things that I'm seeing in the corporate world, and I'd love to hear whether you're noticing something similar, is that we've gone back to the workplaces as though you could flip a switch and to normal. We have not spent time enough as a collective to sit and metabolize and integrate the experience that we have been through and ask ourselves, who have we become as a result of this? Who do we want to become as a result of this? What parts of this do we want to carry with us? What parts mm-hmm. of it we must respectfully let go of? And so there is this underlying, this forced sense of normalcy, just because, you know, we're not wearing masks and quarantining anymore, that that transition and that need to honor that loss. Hmm. Um, I, I, I didn't see that. There were some leadership teams that I worked with that very consciously went into the process to come out on the other side. And I think they grew stronger as a result of it. Hmm. But um, I don't think we have completely gotten over that sense of of loss and and then fear and all of that what what's your experience been like in over in australia and new zealand yeah i mean i said it during covid i'm like this is the easy part the the most challenging part is still coming yet you wait for the next five years it's going to be so disrupted uh you're going to find people are going to go through multiple honeymoon periods of thinking they've got it sorted and they haven't and they're going oh this is amazing and you know, I'll give a great example. You know, I, I love working from home in the fact that I have the freedom and space to be by myself, but I miss the social connection that I have every single day. I love the fact that I can be there when my nine-month baby girl is growing up nearly every step of the way, nearly every day. I mean, obviously, I do go overseas as well and travel sometimes. But it's also very challenging too because it's hard to switch off from that part of my life to be really focused on work. And so we've got so many dynamics happening. Um, You know, we're talking, we've got more talk about things like four day work week, but I I think there's a lot of things they haven't considered here. One is when you try and jam, like when you're trying to get the same productivity and performance in four days and 32 hours rather than 40, uh, you need to take into consideration there are already high performers and high productivity people in there. So, are they going to get now, uh, are they not going to be seen as high performing because they can't fit anything more into their day because they were already jam packing everything in uh, and you try and jam that in. So when you look at what they were achieving beforehand to now what they can achieve now in 32 hours and you're going, well, why aren't they doing as well as someone else? Well, uh, hello, maybe because it doesn't, add, you, you can't fit that many things into that space and time or you you've got people that, may even burn out more because they're trying to, they've been told that, oh, this is more productive and high performing. So they're trying to jam everything into 32 hours Mm. just to be seen that they're more productive and performing so they can keep their three days of relaxation. So there's there's multiple things going on that we're not really considering from what Mm. we've seen over the last few years. There's a lot of unintended consequences that are not surfacing yet and will take some time to surface. And so I think we need to be a little bit more cautious and I think we need to think these things through a little bit more effectively um, because at, at, the, at the heart of it, we need to be looking after the human being. And I know people have good intentions, but I'm not so sure they have quite got it right in certain circumstances. And look, there are some companies that are thriving in, in approaches like this, whether it be four-day work week or different types of working models, et cetera. I'm sure they are. And, and it suits them to the wire but there'll be plenty of others that it may not work. And we're not really considering the collateral damage that could occur and may occur in the future. I agree. I think the question is far more uh, nuanced than what we are uh, framing it as. Well, you know, work from, first of all, it's a binary frame. Work from home, work from office. Like what is better? Or it's, uh, you know, four day work week, six day work week. I mean, the horrific thing about, I heard somebody in China saying the, uh, you know, 997. And I'm like, what's a 997? <laughs> they said, you know, nine to nine, seven days a week. I said, you've got to be kidding me, right? And so I think that that binary framing is is not helping us, but also what are we focused on? I mean, when we say high performers and we're talking about productivity, we are talking about uh, an outcome oriented lens to what? we want from our people in the workplace. And I think if we just allow a little bit of breathing room for other types of metrics, which are more process oriented Mm -hmm. metrics, 
we may see something very, very different. So for example, if you looked at the same team and you used a metric of, is this team truly thriving or not? And you may find that, that the numbers that you come up with when you are looking at it in the lens of how well people are thriving uh, will end up looking very different than if you were saying, how mm. productive is this person being? Productivity is a very, I should say, machine paradigm perspective, whereas thriving, to your point, is a very human age perspective. Mm. And, and I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I would just say that for every time you're tracking productivity, are you also tracking thriving? And the two, are they in conflict with each other? And if so, what are the adjustments that need to get made? And 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 mm. any team at any given point in time is filled with, I mean, you've had a, a, a new baby girl, there's somebody else who, you know, may need to take care of aging parents, the kind of flexibility that they're looking for is, is so varied and to lump everybody into the same group is uh, doing a disservice to the needs of the people. Yeah. And so the conversation needs to become much more nuanced than what it is right now. You know, the big question that's set on my mind, and I've shared this a couple of times now, is what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've got a world that is changing rapidly. We have got, you know, and now a kind of somewhat agreed uh, set of rules that we're in the age of disruption all the time and it's going to get faster and faster and faster. Well, unfortunately, we're human beings. And so my question is, what does it mean to be human? Right. I mean, and it's a very deep question. It very is. Very deep. Again, depending, I think by now you have already uh, probably noticed my bias towards every question depends on the lens, right? And, and this could be a philosophical question. What does it mean to be human? But I think when we talk about workplace cultures, recognizing that we honor the life stages and the human needs of the individuals, right? So we talk a lot about how the workplace needs to become more friendly to neurodivergent people. And I know in one of your previous podcasts, you had a guest who was talking about how we need to have more conversations around menopause in the workplace. Mm. And these are all signs of humanity beating at the corporate door, saying you cannot ignore the fact that at the end of the day, we are human beings with biological, emotional, and life stage needs that need to coexist with the demands of the workplace. Uh, You cannot leave your humanity out the door just because you happen to be on a Zoom call. And we did a great job of integrating that humanity, right, during the pandemic. It's just that now that it's done, it's like business as usual, Mm -hmm. which is what kind of worries me is those gains uh, in practices um, are not necessarily being carried forward because we are much more familiar with the other way of of uh, doing things. So, you know, while there may be many questions on what it means to be human, to me, you know, when I ask HR people what what is the employee life cycle and they say from hiring to retiring, and I'm like, no, that's the employee cycle. The employee life cycle is I just had a miscarriage. I have just been separated. I am looking at adopting a baby. I am having to deal with aging parents. You know, these are employee life cycle is about the life of the employees. And the invitation here is to figure out what is the framework where we can with that we can use that gives us the ability to honor that that aspect of human beings which has not been allowed into the workplace uh, ever, I would say, for most companies. Yeah. Yeah, some big conversations. And, you know, it all starts with creating that space where we can have those conversations. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about psychological safety. We talk about creating permission. Um, For you, when you work with companies, et cetera, what have you seen work really, really well in regards to creating this space where people feel psychologically safe, where people feel permission to, as you say, be human and to to have a greater focus on the life cycle, not the employee cycle? I think a, a whole lot of it depends on role modeling. I believe that you know, as a species, we are tribalists. We take our cue from the person who seems most powerful and how are they doing it? And if I, you know, 
copy that or I follow that, then that's the acceptable norm. I remember very early on uh, when I was uh, in my early career and uh, they were trying to do this whole work-life balance thing, even then. So I'm like talking mm-hmm. of what, more than two decades ago. And one of the managing partners, he would uh, at two role model this, right? At five o'clock, he would get his tennis racket out and get into his uh, shorts and t-shirt. And he would literally walk down the, the corridor announcing to almost every cubicle, I'm going, I, I have a tennis game, I have go- I'm going. Now, it was easy for him to do it, granted, because he was the top guy and he could publicly announce that. But then there were some, uh, you know, uh, smart people like me, early careers were like, oh, I also have an aerobics class. So you literally just kind of trail him and get out of the workplace. But it's interesting now when I look back, it wasn't, that was a permission slip that mm-hmm. I got to be able to say that. And so if you have a leader who 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 doesn't walk the talk, no matter how many initiatives you put in the workplace, it's not going to happen. So in the work that I do, um, I always ask the CEOs that I work with as to what is the level of comfort in coming out and, and sharing their own um, struggle with the issue at hand, including one of my CEOs who admitted that pre-pandemic, there is no way on earth you would have convinced uh, him that working remotely was going to be good for the company. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, I stand a completely changed person. And, you know, hats off to him for making that confession that I was the one who was against it. And I can see that it's it's done. So I think it all comes down to role modeling from the leaders. Okay, very good. Well, high performance has popped up a couple of times in our conversation so far. Uh, it, it's, it's an interesting one for me because I, I grew up in high performance world and sport. And when it comes to perform- high performance in sport, there's a few more tangible things. Like there's, uh, as Simon Sinek talks about, the infinite game and the finite game. You know, when we play sport, it's very finite. We know where the rules are, you know, where you sit, um, you know, where you are in the pecking order. Um, it, just because you're number one doesn't mean you're a high performer. Um, and, and people need to note that as well. Um, I've always had this philosophy around, like I always had a question, you know, since I was very, very young, I recall it uh, at least when I was 12 years old, asking the question, why aren't people healthier, happier and hungrier for success? Mm. Right. I saw, I saw lots of happy people that were quite happy just to do nothing. I saw very successful people who were happy, but really unhealthy. Um, and it was very rare to see all three. And I, and I kind of, like for me, I used to get really frustrated when people had so much talent but would never use it. Like it, it, it kind of annoyed me. I had And I had to kind of let that go over the years because <laughs> I can't solve that for everyone. I'll try, but I can't quite solve that. And um, But I see a lot of people putting out there, this is what it means to be high performance. And I, I kind of sigh at times because I'm sitting there going, no, that's just someone performing. It, it's like someone doing a good job, like their baseline things. And I don't, I don't always, I, I, I'm kind of concerned sometimes that people put themselves in a, in a position of I'm a high performer, like, or, uh, or we're creating high performance here. But I'm like, well, you're just doing fundamental things that everyone should be doing. These are baseline things. So I'm curious from your perspective, what you've seen, the research you've done, um, you're probably going to you're probably going to say it depends what lens you're looking through here. <laughs> but I maybe take a stance on this. What do you think high performance is in the corporate workspace? Exceeds expectations. How's that for a stance? Um, <laughs> and the expectations often are determined by the market forces because you're benchmarking against competitors, uh, saying you know they managed to do it in half the resources and you know one third time, and and those are the metrics that you are really used to. So, you know, in my book that is coming out on Veep collaboration, I have talked about the fact that previously our metrics of performance. Uh, were whether you are able to do it on time, below cost, and high quality. And I call that the iron triangle of success. Very hard iron metrics on performance. But as you kind of start transitioning to the human age, 
I have been for a very long time, even in my classes at the business school and with my clients, been talking about the human triangle. And the metrics of the human triangle are affinity, uh, opportunity, and learning. When you look at a project, do people feel like this is a team that I really want to work with and I want to continue working with? This is the place I want to work with. And you know, to our point earlier, you want to show that culture off. Opportunity is about, let's assume this project failed on one of the iron triangle metrics, right? Where you maybe you didn't produce it on time, you took a longer period of time. Yet, you have ended up improvising in a way that the product is even better than it was before. And so while you fail on the metric of time, you create a greater market opportunity because now you have a much better product in your hands. And so how much more opportunity got created as a result of the journey that you just undertook and then what has been the learning did you learn anything or not and most mm -hmm. of the companies and teams i find don't often ask this question of what did i end up learning so high performance when looked at it from the iron triangle metric is often externally benchmarked and uh, has that lens to it on exceeding expectations the human triangle is much more internally referenced where we talk about how did we evolve as a team? How did we evolve as human beings? And that's the whole point, going back to what does it mean to be human, is to keep an eye on the human triangle and the human metrics as much, if not more. Because the goal of the enterprise traditionally has been the iron triangle, hmm. the metrics of production. It has not been the metrics of human evolution, which by the way, I can guarantee you this, if you begin with a focus on the human triangle, the iron triangle will take care of itself. I've seen this uh, over and over again. Yeah, good. All right. So I agree with that. The human the human needs to be ahead of kind of the, um, you talk about the iron triangle there. And I think that's so, so important. Uh, for me, there's more to it. I think there's another layer. And and I'll give you I'll give you an experience and maybe this is not I, I've shared it in a couple of podcasts now, um, but I was involved with New Zealand's winningest sports team and no it's not the All Blacks um, we went we went two hundred and seventy two games unbeaten. Yeah, how right. cool is that? By the way, <laughs> cool. well, despite when you look at some of the best professional and international teams in the world, their longest streaks are only about twenty games. Wow, and there's not many that have like that are ever recorded over a hundred very very few in any level of sport um, we actually don't know if there's a, another team around the world that has gone more than 272 games right but there's and, and i'm actually in the process of interviewing them surveying them and then also interviewing a lot of people that regularly played against that team to kind of try and 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 even some of the supporters and the support network around them to really understand what was in there but there's a there's a few things shining through and i'm and i'm curious to see what you think about this one of them is around social the social connection mm -hmm. and you know when you think about it and you go back in time we used to go to the, like, I don't know, you would have seen this in Australia, right? Friday, 12 o'clock, everyone goes to the pub, <laughs> has a drink, and you socialize. Um, we are now seeing, and obviously some of that got a little bit out of hand, and there's some companies are in trouble for kind of maybe the boundaries being pushed a little bit too far. I'll, I'll leave that to the courts and, and to those companies to, to determine whether they were right or wrong and should change. Um but we're missing that social connection. One with this this hybrid workforce, we're missing those social connections. Um, you know, if we look at companies that are going to four day work week, you are cramming all your work in, but there is very little time for social connection. Um, that is one big one. And I know with our team, we it it wasn't just our team. It was the the women's premier team. It was also the junior teams. It was also the golden oldies as we used to call them. So those that were kind of barely able to kind of, you know, run 10 meters, but we're still playing field hockey type thing. And, and it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful community of people that were extremely diverse. So, so that is one piece that I'm seeing that a lot of companies are struggling with. How do we grapple with this online? How do we grapple with this when 
people seem to have so many more other things going on in their life. They seem to be super busy and, and everyone seems to be quite focused on their own life rather than the community. From, from just that one piece alone, how do, we, how do we try and layer that into high-performing teams in a corporate space? Because to me, you've got to, to, to be able to have those courageous conversations, to be able to fully understand someone, to collaborate deeply, you need to know them well outside of just your the, the transactional work that you're doing. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about what, what are some of the other uh, trends you saw, because that's that's quite an impressive streak. But uh, I think that, that social connection speaks to the, the affinity part of the human triangle that I, I spoke about, because that that feeds in the team into its this momentum that gets created or, you know, looking forward to working with the team at the same time. I think that we saw this in the pandemic when people were, you know, zoomed out of their brains. <laughs> being online for hours on an end with no work-life boundaries, et cetera. And yet there were teams that would create the happy hour online mm. version of it. And people turned up. I think by nature, human beings gravitate to wanting to spend time with each other in a social environment. What has happened, I think, is that in some teams, you know, some leaders are like, oh, we're supposed to create a social environment. All right, fine. Monday morning, 10 minutes, we are going to go around the table and tell me what you're grateful for. People have started turning up 10 minutes late to the meeting. Nobody wants to be a part of this forced ritual of, you know, tell me what's going great in your life or this forced humanity kind of a thing. Mm. So I think as long as uh, the space is genuine and we are actually witnessing each other as human beings, we'll find time for it because mm. people want to be seen for who they are and not just what they do. And that's, again, a skill that you have to learn, which is why, in, you know, in, in the book, I talk about five conversations. But the first conversation is about trying to understand who are the people on my team? What is their purpose in being at work beyond the purpose of our team or our function or our organization? And how can we best create that connection between what you're seeking from your, from your life? You know, I'm going to digress a little bit, but I think this story... Uh, that I heard, I think it speaks to this idea that apparently at one point in time on LinkedIn, when people were being interviewed for their job, they would ask them, where would you like to go after this job from LinkedIn? Mm. This is when they have not even been hired, but they were being asked this. And I think that's the absolutely correct question to ask because yeah, sure, we'd love to have you stay, but we are not going to assume that we are the only place. You may have aspirations on going to other places. You may have, you know, skills you want to pick up here and apply to. Maybe some of you want to, you know, do your own startup. Maybe some of you think that, you know, you can be a part of this team and then move on to, uh, you know, a bigger tech career or something. So why would we, you know, hesitate to call it out and have a human conversation? What are you really looking for from your workplace? And I'm sure there are people, you know, Craig, I have felt the way you have felt at times that people who have potential, who have the ability to do more, and they have chosen not to for whatever reason, right? And there are some people who just want to come to the workplace and they want to do their job and they just want to go home. That's mm. their relationship with work. But if that's the relationship with work, then let's just have an open conversation on the kind of roles that you would best fit in. I mean, we have to make space for people's choices on what is the relationship they have with their work. Yeah, super, super important in that relationship there, that connection, right? You were talking, you know, for those that are listening, uh, Tanvi's got a, she's, she's got a new book coming out uh, in 2024 called Deep Collaboration and those connections as well. Um, I'm really curious to understand from a collaboration point of view, what that means and and how that's effective, right? So uh, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you share a bit, and then I'm going to bring in a different lens here, and I'm going to see what your perspective is on it. So, so what does it mean by deep collaborations and the importance of that in the workforce? Well, very simply put, uh, deep collaboration versus super colla superficial collaboration, as I like to call it, is when. People think they're doing collaboration, but what they're really doing is coordination. Okay, I've done my part. This is my part. Now, what are you supposed to do it? You go take care of it. I think superficial teams tend to focus on that 
on time, under budget, high quality uh, as a metric. And it always stays at that level, surface level conversation where we are sometimes going through the motions of it. Uh, but for deep collaboration, we are going after a very different set of metrics. Mm. The human triangle being part of it, the affinity learning and the opportunity. But the conversations we are having, having are also much deeper. Actually spending time to understand the five different conversations that you need to have for, for uh, deep collaboration. And each of the conversations gets to some element of linking who you are, what you are wanting, and what's going on in the workplace. And that that connective tissue makes it deep collaboration versus just a process-oriented collaboration or a project-oriented collaboration. Mm. So that is uh, the difference. There was a second part to your question, which I may have missed. No, 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 no. It's just understanding what deep collaboration is. And and I think that's a good point to have, right? Collaboration isn't just collectively doing your piece in that role. You know, to me, collaboration is... I've got a skill set. You've got a skill set. Let's bring them together. What else can we create from that in a way? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's what the bigger picture is. It's not just I have a skill set. You have a skill set. I get my job done. You get your job done. No, that's not it. It's around collaboration is about the what can you do with your collective skill sets together or your collective mm-hmm. thoughts and ideas together, um, mm-hmm. which is which is, I think, really, really fascinating. I'm playing with an idea at the moment and it may ups, it could stir a few people. I don't think we have quite got diversity and inclusion right yet. Right? The the importance I I I am I mean I'm I'm one of the greatest people when it comes to bringing diverse people together. I surround myself with people that are so different to me all the time. Um even to the extent that I love having conversations with people I disagree with. Um, Mm -hmm. because I want to understand what they're thinking that is different to mine. But when it comes to certain situations, just by saying, all right, you you know, we need to include you and and we need to make this more diverse, doesn't actually mean it's going to create a better environment. It does not actually mean you're going to be more Mm -hmm. high-performing. You know, so we have to be somewhat, we still need to understand what is that... I'm going to call it deep connection of the reason people were there. So it's not just a right for someone to belong to a group or or, or join a company. There needs to be a, a bonding connection that where their diversity can thrive because that there, that, that point, that center point is there that allows the culture to thrive and not just kind of go off where, you know, let it flow into different tangents. Um, I hope I'm explaining this the right way. Um, but I, 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 let's put this one in, in a case, for instance, where I go to the gym, there's a mums and bubs class, right? So there's a place where a mum can come along, bring their baby and they can do gym exercise. Awesome. Really, really cool. Great idea. Social, great connections, etc. I'm a dad who has a baby. Now, I can't go and join that class. And, and I could put up a petition and say, hey, look, you're not being inclusive enough. Um, let me be a part of this, right? But I'm being responsible. And I know that if I did that, it would totally change the whole culture and vibe and the reason those people come together. Now, I could go off and start my own parents' one or my own dads and bubs. Now, I have that opportunity. But in that situation, it actually it actually could destroy what is a really, really cool culture, what is a really, really cool place for people to belong, people to connect, people to thrive in. And so we need to understand there are times and places where we need to consider where diversity and inclusion and, and the way we approach diversity and inclusion is actually going to be helpful for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And so I... I, I still think there's some work to do around this um, to get this right. And and maybe we'll never get it right. Um, but I, yeah, I'm curious to kind of see what you think because there's been such a massive push around diversity, equity, inclusion. But I'm sometimes I feel like the lens is a little narrow. What I think, Craig, is that you are just getting started with this whole conversation because you are now the daughter, you've got a daughter, and you are, and I find that 
fathers who have daughters uh, end up uh, with engaging with this conversation with, with a much greater level of depth. So welcome to that special club uh, to begin with. Um, I think that there should be a space for all options to thrive. Mm-hmm. What about those dads who are single fathers and there just is no option for a mother to take the baby out there or you know their wives are suffering from postpartum depression? Does the baby not deserve a chance to be out there in one of those you know clubs which are a social need for the child as much as it is for the parent to kind of get out and do something apart from parenting? And so I'm sure that if you were to start Uh, you know, a parents club or a mixed group. There may be others who might join. Uh, I would have loved, and I actually did. We, in when I was a new parent and we had one of these clubs, it, it, it wasn't actually called the Moms and Bubs. It was just called uh, the Play Hour at Jimbury. That's all it was mm. called. And I would love to send off my six-month-old with my husband because I needed both of them out of my hair. <laughs> <laughs> It's like go and you know yeah. do your thing and come back and so I think a lot of it can coexist I run the global women and leadership program here and I've been running it for 10 years and a lot of women walk in and for some of them it's their first experience with an all women's group they've been in leadership development programs and they're like we've never been in an all women's mm. group is this even really necessary and I say well why don't you answer that question at the end of three days See what you get out of it and at the end of three days they're like oh my god I mean this is one of the best experiences you know I'm understanding the experience of the fellow women much better than I had understood it before etc and I always give them this analogy I said you know there is the girlfriend's night out and then there is the date night and both can coexist mm-hmm. and I think that's part of the diversity and inclusion conversation as long as there is enough traction for it why not I mean my one of my first articles that I wrote for Forbes was called which they changed the title of. The original title was Real Men Don't Need Work-Life Balance, which was exactly the opposite of what was being said in the article because the assumption <laughs> is, oh, real men push through. And I was like, no, that's not what real men is about. And then, um, you know, the whole point in that was that women who are asking for a more inclusive workplace themselves are leaving men out of the conversation men who are fathers, men who are caregivers. And I would have thought that women should have been the first to recognize what leaving somebody out might have felt like, but mm. that was not where they went. And so you're right. There is a lot of work that still has got to be done. Mm. And we can't be held back because uh, moms and bubs rhymed better than dads and brats or I don't whatever else. <laughs> By the way, this is at a fitness gym. It's like a fitness class. Um, so to give it a little bit more context. So, yeah, look, look, I just think like for me, as I said, I I love what we've been able to create with diversity and inclusion. I just feel like it's going to go, it's got to go another level yet to really, really um, get it to thrive properly. Um, we all know that if we want to potentially and I'm going to say potentially because it's not always correct potentially do something better we want to bring as many diverse like um voices to the table and I'm, I'm always going to say potential there because it doesn't always mean it will be better if we want to do something faster you reduce the diversity mm-hmm. if you want to go fast and so we need to understand when are those times and people to be comfortable and it's okay that that we can create those spaces to whatever we need um to to deliver something effectively or to achieve an outcome if the outcome is to how can we be more innovative and creative and and build something better right then then there's a, a way to approach that so I just think we need to kind of keep that um perspective at times just to go you know what what does this need right now um which I think is important our time is going very fast indeed It's going very, very fast. Um, now you've got you've got your own podcast. You've interviewed some incredible people on that podcast, the likes of Daniel Pink, um, Alexa Clay, Seth Godin, among many others. What is it about conversations for you, having those conversations and turning up and interviewing you know you these people? What is it about it that you love? 
I, I love the fact that all these people, despite all their fame and body of work and recognition, that they genuinely know how to engage in a conversation that can lead to learning. Mm-hmm. I think I remember in my podcast with Seth Godin um, when he said, you know, 80% of the job is to frame the question as beautifully as you did. He had the the humility and the learning mindset to see that somebody else could frame it in a way that he hadn't thought about. There mm-hmm. was a time in Daniel King's podcast when he said, I've never thought about that question. And I was like, Ooh, and I'm like a bit of a Daniel Pink fan girl. So I was like, oh my God, did I ask him something he didn't think about? <laughs> so, uh, but that that humility and openness to learning, which is what makes them that that mm. fabulous. So whereas, you know, I, I definitely go in with, with some preparation about things I'd like to talk to them, but sometimes it just takes off on a tangent and it becomes so much richer because of that. And their willingness to engage with the unknown and their willingness to say, I don't know, or their willingness to say, that's interesting you know, tell me more. Uh, that's that's something I've seen common in almost all the guests that have come on the show. Yeah, beautiful. We all know uh, smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, gosh. Uh, I actually do something that I haven't done for the first time almost every year. And I do that as a part of uh, what I call an annual retreat. So there was one time when I took off to Morocco on an art class, just for context. I had picked up art crayons when I was in kindergarten last. And it was funny because when I went on that retreat, we had artists who had got like 20 different types of brushes and palette knives. And, And there I was going, so, oh, so if you mix this with this, you get a third color. And I just love being there. I, I cool. love that feeling of being illiterate in a skill or in a language or, uh, you know, in, in an environment because it just remind it's a reminder to me always as to how much more there is still for me to learn and how people are such experts in fields that I absolutely know nothing about. So for me, it's actually a very, uh, it's, it's a ritual. Mm. It is an annual, it's an annual ritual. I love that. I love that annual ritual. And I think people, um, I think more people should should consider something like that. I think it's fantastic. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Oh, my God. Um, how to be a less anxious parent. I can be very anxious as a parent. Um, and uh, I sometimes when they announce my credentials for keynotes etc i get them to add that learning to be an imperfect mother was Mm -hmm. one of the most difficult journeys i've ever taken uh, in my life and so and i think for me the answer is self uh, reflective because to the point i made earlier about self-leadership it's easy to ask the world to change it's much harder to ask yourself to change so i'm still working on that part (laughs) for you what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you? I think I find different leaders inspiring for different reasons. Um, for example, I admire Indra Nui for uh, the sheer grit she had. I mean, the time when she moved to the US, access to resources for her, as well as learning to navigate cross-cultural situations was something that she had to kind of learn for herself. So I think that's something that I really admire. I admire uh, Brené Brown's work for the level of vulnerability and research she you know, comes at it uh, from. Um, I admire the work of Jacinda Arden, who always showed up with a level of humanity that is so unprecedented uh, for so many of the political leaders. And so, yeah, many, many different leaders. I, I go to different, different uh, role models, depending on what I'm kind of grappling with. I like that. It's good. Distributed um, distributed resourcing <laughs> in a way. <laughs> uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I could keep going. As I said, the time had come pretty fast and, and we're already ticked over the now, which is quite impressive. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? 
Right. So my website is leadersupgraded.com because nobody ever said no to an upgrade, whether it is hotels or uh, flights uh, or their life. So that's why leadersupgraded.com and forward slash deep if you want to find out more about the book that's coming out. Uh, If you get in touch on LinkedIn, make sure you tell me that you heard me on Craig's podcast. So I know you are legit. Uh, and I do spend time on LinkedIn, so that would be the best place to go look yeah. Fantastic. I will put those in uh, those links in the show notes for everyone. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Dr. Tanvi. I have thoroughly enjoyed talking about deep collaborations, um, learning about your childhood and the great lesson that your dad provided you when you came home and there was no one waiting up for you and you were kind of a little concerned that no one was concerned about you. <laughs> um, to to kind of all the, the range of companies you've dealt with and the experiences you learn from that, that you are now able to bring collectively together for you as a leader, but to share with other people, whether you are at the university or whether you're working with other companies or on your own podcast as well. Um I like that you look at it from different lenses. I think that's important. Sometimes we can get very tunnel visioned and very focused on this one viewpoint in this one way when we need to always be considering other viewpoints. And I am really looking forward to reading deep collaboration. I think this is a word that is uh, collaboration is a word that is talked about a lot, but sometimes it can be a little bit superficial and I think we need to spend more time trying to understand how can we create better collaboration in the workforce, better collaboration in our relationships to to not only enhance the work that we do in that situation, but also enhance humanity. And so thank you very much for your time. You're a wonderful human being, and I look forward to sitting down and maybe having dinner or a cup of coffee sometime when I'm in Singapore. Thank you very much, Craig. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I, I love the work that you're doing in helping people manage their energy and leadership journey. It's much needed. So thank you once again. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.